0: This morning, welcome to another episode of Scary Families Taking the Fright Out of Family Life Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing biblical examples of how family life can get scary Today's message is entitled Families That Use Each Other and There is one family in particular that I'd like to focus on this morning and that's the royal family of King David and Queen Michael. We find it here in our Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 18. But again, before we dive right into the study, just to kind of get you in the mood, I want to show you a few pictures this morning, a few family portraits of what appear to me to be pretty spooky families. See, I know that most of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say scary family. You live in the perfect family. Families that always love. Families that never fright. That's your family, I know. So just to prime the pump this morning, just to kind of get you in the mood, each week I've decided to start with several snapshots of what look like to me to be scary families. Well, photo number one. That looks scary to me. You know, when when a bride and a groom go horseback riding right after the wedding, it's not a good sign when the groom gets the Shetland pony. That's not a good sign. This could be a domineering wife waiting to happen. I'm not sure, but it could be. Here's another scary photo. Get the idea that this groom is actually showing mom a little too much attention on a very special day. I've got a feeling that a conversation is about to happen between this bride and her groom. Number three, another scary family. Does that look scary or what? I mean, the only explanation, I looked at this picture for a long time, and the only explanation that I could come up with for this picture is that apparently this family is really tired. (laughs) Really tired. And then last but not least, in honor of Memorial Day and American patriotism, there they are, a family of four, mom, son, daughter, dad, all dressed up in the stars and stripes, they deserve a salute. Well, I've just shown you four families that seem a little scary. But none of these four are anything like the first family of Israel. David and Michael had a frightening marriage. The Bible provides us four snapshots of their family, and each glimpse gets a little spookier than the former. All four portraits are scattered out across First and 2 Samuel, and we're going to look at them this morning. In fact, we're going to summarize them before we look at them. I'll give you an overview. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, Michael loves David, but she doesn't get to know him. In 1 Samuel 19, they live together, but they don't grow together. In 1 Samuel 25, he has to leave, but she refuses to undergo his hardships. And then 2 Samuel 6 sums up the results. She laughs at his worship and God says no to her fruitfulness. She doesn't get to know or grow or undergo his hardships and God says no to his blessing on her. This morning we're going to learn that family life gets very, very scary when family members use each other. Realize now, David and Michael were the celebrity couple. David was a national hero. He had proven his bravery on the battlefield with only a sling and a stone and a faith in God. He had toppled the giant Goliath, the Philistine champion. David had defeated and had demoralized the enemy. And when David returned home, you remember what happened. The Israelite maidens, they all rushed out into the street. They were dancing and they were singing. Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. The shepherd boy David had become more popular than the king of Israel. David was a rock star, a real superstar. And Michael was also a starlet. She was the youngest daughter of King Saul. Did you know the word Michael? It means brook. Her name means brook. She was the brook shields of her day. Although later we'll see that she turned out to be more of a drip than a brook. I'm sure Michael was pretty. She was definitely privileged. And she was King Saul's youngest daughter. She was the baby of the family, pampered and spoiled, no doubt. You know, it's been said, in fact, I warned my son-in-law, never marry a woman whose daddy calls her princess unless you're willing to treat her like a queen. Well, that was certainly the case with Saul's daughter, Michael. David and Michael, they had this celebrity marriage. They attracted the limelight. Their photos were on the front page of the tabloids. They were hawked by the paparazzi. David and Michael were the Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore of ancient Israel. They were the Mark Anthony and the Jennifer Lopez. Here was a Hebrew Chris Humphreys and Kim Kardashian. David and Michael were a storybook couple. But like the marriages I just mentioned, their fairy tale romance ended up a nightmare. Sadly, Kim and Chris, they only stayed married 72 days. How's that for a scary marriage? David and Michael also ended frustrated and barren. I've heard it said, Hollywood wives have signed more marriage certificates than autographs. The point is, celebrity marriages are notoriously unsuccessful because celebrities are notoriously self-centered. Actors and star athletes and artists and models and debutantes are often too proud or too jealous or too materialistic to sacrifice and share with someone else. And guys, it is the sacrificing that makes a marriage work. You see, this was the problem with David's marriage. His wife was spoiled rotten. Let me say it. In most marriages, the problems are two-sided. Usually, it takes two to tango. But in this marriage, you've got to admit that the lion's share of the blame rested on Michael. She used people to get her way. In fact, David actually had a nickname. You know how couples sometimes have little pet names for each other? David had a nickname for Michael. He called her Shasta. He explained it. She has to have this, and she has to have that. She has to. The the only time that Michael told her husband that he was handsome was when she wanted his money. She'd say, hey, big boy, handsome over. (laughs) You see, Michael was the material girl. Unlike David, she had zero appetite for spiritual things. She could care less about honor and integrity. She'd do anything or say anything to save her own skin and get what she wanted. Michael knew nothing of character and humility and holiness. You know, the Bible called David a man after God's own heart, whereas Michael was a woman after her own heart. David did God's will. Michael did her own thing. Michael was a daughter of Israel. She knew of the true God. Her dad, King Saul, was filled with the Spirit at one point. He'd been good friends with the godly prophet Samuel. All this had provided Michael opportunities to learn of God. But godliness wasn't on the material girl's radar. Understand, life for Michael was all about how she could get ahead and what was in it for her. And this included her attitude toward marriage and family. She used David, but in the end she was refused by God. Well, the first time we see David and Michael is prior to the wedding. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we pick up the story in verse 20. We're told, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. Twice, here and in verse 28, we're going to be told that Michael loved David. But here's the question. Why did she love David? What was it about him that attracted her? Michael didn't even know David at the time. At this point, she'd never even met him. Now, I'm sure she had heard of David from her brother Jonathan. Jonathan and David were good friends. And he was certainly good-looking, even at a distance. And by now, David was an Israeli folk hero. I mean, he was rich and wildly popular. He was Jerusalem's most eligible bachelor. And I'm sure that the king's daughter had concluded if she married David, she would be the envy of every girl in Israel. And so, she used her dad's authority to make it all happen. You know, earlier in 1 Samuel 14 verse 52, we're told, Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. Saul was going around conducting this personal draft. Whenever he saw a key, uh, saw a young man... Whenever the king saw a young man that he thought would make a good soldier, he just enlisted him right there on the spot. Saul just took whatever he wanted. And is it any surprise that Michael followed suit? Like daddy, like daughter. She wanted David, and so she manipulated the situation to get him to the altar. Notice verse 20. Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Now, Michael will use Saul to get David, but Saul is just as diabolical because he's about to use Michael's affections as bait in a trap. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Michael loved David, but Saul hated David. He was jealous of his popularity. And he saw him as a threat to his throne. And so he uses the offer of his own daughter to put David in harm's way. Rather than just kill David himself, he'll use the Philistines to do the dirty work for him. Notice this, Michael uses her dead without even asking what he thinks of her getting married. But Saul uses his daughter to try to kill the man she loves. Saul doesn't even blink at the potential of breaking Michael's heart. Get the feel for this family. They know how to use people. That's what they're good at. They know how to use people for their own ends. This was a family of users. Back to the story, verse 21. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed man? I mean, David's response to joining the royal family was one of humility. He felt undeserving of such an honor. Saul's servants, they report back, And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner, David spoke. And this was exactly the humble response Saul expected from David. He doesn't feel worthy to join the royal family. So Saul is going to appeal to his bravado. He challenges David to prove himself by winning his daughter's hand in marriage. But this mission is going to be dangerous. And Saul is hoping that David won't survive. Listen to what he proposes. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. You see, Saul understood. He knew men. Try to forcibly remove another man's foreskin? And you've got to fight to the death on your hands. 100 Philistines was a death wish, my friend. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. David relishes a challenge, man. 104 skins, that's no big deal. Let's make it 200. And David attacks. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. He probably set an ambush. You know, caught the Philistines with their pants down, you might say. (laughs) David was good at hitting below the belt, that's for sure. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count. Apparently they counted them out, one to two hundred. That he might become the king's son-in-law. Imagine David, he produces his leather pouch and he starts counting out 200 human foreskins. Kind of throws them down on the king's table one by one. Can you imagine? If this doesn't qualify as a scary family, nothing does. Now before we move on, let me make a comment about this dowry. Granted, Philistine foreskin seems gross to us, but believe it or not, it had a godly appeal to David. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. It was symbolic of God's people and their faith. Uncircumcision was a mark of unbelief. Interestingly, a fold of flesh was a symbol of paganism and idolatry. Thus, God commanded Israel to drive the uncircumcised out of the land 200 Philistine foreskins were actually a sign of David's zeal and obedience and love for God. In fact, later, a tree in Israel was named in honor of David's heroics that day. The Jews called the tree the juniper tree. Today they've renamed it as the eucalyptus tree. I really have a few more, I have a few more one-liners here, but I, but I think I just need to cut it off, all right? Just, just cut it off. <laughs> of course, this was not the outcome Saul desired. David had forced his hand now, and the king had no choice. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Notice again, we're told Michael loved David. But what did she love? She didn't love the man. How could she? She didn't even know David. It seems to me that Michael fell in love with a hero, not a husband. She never took the time to learn what made David tick. She just admired his image, his reputation. You see, Michael glorified David's virtues, but she never tried to understand what made him virtuous. She fell in love with how he made her feel, not who he really was. There's an old song from the 60s that was sung by the doors Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? This was Michael's attitude toward her husband. She loved him, but she didn't know him. She just loved his image. His reputation, what she thought he was and should be. That's what she loved. You see, to Michael, David wasn't a person. He was an expensive bracelet that she wore around her arm in public events to make herself look good. She used David. She wants to ride him to power and prestige. This was why she had fallen in love. With his status, not with his standards. Michael saw her father use people. She saw Saul use people. She'd used her father. And now she'll use her husband for her own ends. Sadly, some people are takers rather than givers. And my friends, this is an attitude that always makes for a scary family. Remember Delilah, Samson's girl? She wanted to know the secret of his strength. Her motive was sinister, but at least her question was right. She asked to know. Michael, though, didn't even bother. She made zero effort to discover the secret of her husband's strength. Michael loved that David was brave and loyal, but she was so superficial, she never bothered to learn why. She never asked David about his convictions and his faith in God. You see, Michael's attitude resembles many families today. What wife doesn't want a husband who loves and cherishes her? What husband doesn't want a wife who's compassionate and kind? We all want a godly spouse, a person of conviction, who'll be a pillar of strength and an example to our kids. But here's the problem. We want a godly mate, but we don't want to share our mate with God. We like the fruits of godliness, but we're jealous of the influence God might play in the life of our spouse. You see, a Michael doesn't like playing second fiddle to their spouse's commitment to God. I'm thinking of the husband who resents the time his wife spends at church or at Bible study. Or the wife who won't let her husband sign up for the retreat or the mission trip just because it interferes with her plans. Hey, for our family's sake, we want a godly spouse, but we resent what it takes to make that person godly. That's short-sighted. Michael loved David, but made no effort to get to know him. She had no desire to share his relationship with God. It was all about what he could do for her. Why get to know a person if you just plan to use them? Understand, it actually takes three marriages to make one healthy marriage. A marriage between God and a husband. A marriage between God and a wife. And then a marriage between that husband and that wife. If you want a successful family, it's not enough to love your spouse. You need to get to know both God and your spouse. You need to be willing to share God with your spouse and to share your spouse with God. I love this quote by Pastor Charlie Shedd. He writes this, In 20 years, I estimate that I have counseled more than 2,000 couples who came to me with their problems, ranging from the triviality to the tumultuous. Now hear this. I have never had one couple come to me with their troubles if they prayed together. One out of none was broken beyond repair if they slipped their joined hands into the hand of God through prayer. You remember what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 12. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It takes three strands to create a marriage that can endure the stretchings of life. You and your spouse alone are not enough. It's the third strand, Jesus Christ, that provides the toughness and the tenacity that will keep your marriage from pulling apart. See, to take the fright out of family life, next to my own walk with God, my top priority should be to encourage and support my spouse's relationship with God. Families need to cut off their own selfishness and their own idolatry. Did you know your own happiness can become an idol in your life? You need to rally around each other's efforts towards faith and godliness. Don't become jealous. Support the spiritual steps that your spouse seeks to take. Be a help to them, not a hindrance. You need to realize this. The closer a spouse gets to God, the more he or she will love you. I promise. Well, a second snapshot of David and Michael is found in 1 Samuel 19. Just flip a page and you'll be there. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Here the celebrity couple is in the midst of married life. They settled down. They got their own bungalow. But David's father-in-law is still causing problems. He dispatches an assassination squad to take out David. And you think you've got problems with your in-laws. Notice verse 11. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And to her credit, Michael is concerned about her husband. She's fearful for his life. A homicidal father-in-law certainly makes for scary family dynamics. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Michael helps her husband make a getaway. And then she buys him some time. Verse 13. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. Now obviously here, she's trying to pass off her husband as a dummy. At times, that's not really hard to do. But here it doesn't work, at least not for long. But this does bring up an interesting glimpse into the married life of David and Michael. The Hebrew word used for David's dummy, or image, was the word teraphim, which were the household idols Or the talismans or the little trinkets that were kept around the house in order to bring good luck. Apparently, David loved the one true God. But Michael kept messing around with these various false gods. This shows that though Michael lived with David, she didn't grow with David. They slept side by side in the same bed, but his love for God never rubbed off on his wife. Michael was a proud woman. She was raised a royal. David was a mere commoner. Oh, she could love David, but she didn't want to be humble and learn from him. It's amazing to me that you can love a person, but not be willing to learn from them. Couples, here's a scary thought. Hey, this, brace yourself. This is scary. Do you realize that God could actually teach you a few spiritual truths through your spouse? Whoa! It's true. God could. You know, some ladies, they love to grumble and complain about their husband. He's not the spiritual leader that I need him to be. But then when the old boy does try to lead, do you support his efforts? Or do you question him and criticize him? Trust me, Men are raised as little boys, not to fight with girls. Men don't want to fight with women. When a husband feels like he has to wrestle the leadership away from his wife, he capitulates, or he even vacates. He would rather walk away than fight for control. Ladies, a husband will never lead until you're willing to follow. Notice Michael. She had set up this ruse so David could escape, but then she tells a lie. We're told, so when Saul sent messengers to David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. (laughs) I'll take care of this. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, well, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, first she lies to save David. Now she lies to save herself. David never threatened his wife. He never would have. And I'm sure her lie only ratcheted up Saul's hatred for her husband. It did more harm than good. Obviously, Michael had learned nothing about character from David. She thinks a lie is no big deal. In a sense, Michael's deception was a microcosm of her own heart. I believe she put an image in her bed long before she substituted the hairy one for David. I really believe that. Michael didn't really love David. She loved a mental image that she had created of a husband. And she tried to make David fit that image. Again, she wanted a hero, not a husband long before she had swapped an idol for a husband. You know, every time I watch a Superman episode, it bugs me, it really bugs me, that Lois Lane always falls head over heels in love with Superman, but she won't give poor Clark Kent the time of day. When in reality, the two are the same person. The same is true with Mary Jane. She loves Spider-Man, not Peter Parker. Yet they're the same guy. Why is it? That women like to fall in love with supermen and superheroes? Why is it that men like to fall in love with superwomen, but neither supermen nor superwomen even exist? It's been said some women believe in dreams until they marry one. The dream boat eventually sinks. Michael's dream boat literally went out the window, she saw him go. And yours will too ladies. When you love a mental image of what your spouse ought to be, what you think he should be, trust me, he will never live up. You see the idea behind family life is to take people as is and then grow together into all that God has for your family. Here's an essay by a 10-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy named Tommy. It's entitled What is love? He writes, love is something that makes two people think they're pretty even when nobody else does. It makes them sit close together on a bench even when there's plenty of room. It makes two people very quiet when you're around. And when they think you're gone, they talk about roses and dreams. And that's all I know about love until I grow up. But you see, the key to marriage and family is to grow up. Fairy tale romances are fine when you're 10 years old, but now you're 30, and your husband, ladies, is about as close to Prince Charming as the old boy's ever going to get. It's time that you get beyond the unrealistic expectations you have for your marriage and learn to appreciate your husband for who he really is and what he actually does. It's been said a wife is a woman who expects her husband to be perfect and to understand that she's not. Likewise, men tend to expect a lot from their wives. False expectations are a big reason why marriages and families get scary. We need to get the idols out of our beds and out of our heads. We need a reality check. Don't expect from a spouse what only God can provide. God is the only person who never disappoints. You see, a good marriage is between two grown-ups. A good marriage concentrates on my responsibilities toward my wife, not my wife's responsibilities toward me. We all need to grow up. Well, our third snapshot of David and Michael is found in 1 Samuel 25, verse 44. I'm going to put it up on the big screen for you. But this is sort of where the story gets fuzzy. We don't get all the details we'd like. This verse, 1 Samuel 25 verse 44 reads, But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. David had fled into the wilderness to avoid a murderous Saul. For several years he lives on the run. He's a federal fugitive who hides in caves. But while he's gone, Saul has tried to crush David's heart. He's given his wife to another man. Apparently, this palti gets the prize. And he and Michael, they settled down in a comfortable villa east of the Jordan River. It was a cruel act by a mean king. But the question arises, was Michael Saul's willing participant in this betrayal? And admittedly, we don't really know. I am certain, though, just from what we know of her, that Michael had no desire to hide out with David. Wilderness life will ruin your nails. Think of what those damp caves would do to her hair. What would her friends think if she was labeled an outlaw? I am sure that her convenience and her comfort and her celebrity would all take precedent over her commitment to David. You know, Greek mythology has the story of a handsome boy who loved no one until he saw his image in the water and he fell in love with his own reflection. He never saw it again and he grew so lovesick that he gradually wasted away. According to the myth, he died and he turned into the flower that now bears his name, the Narcissus. Well, Michael was the ultimate narcissist. She was in love all right with herself. And it became obvious when her love for David called on her to endure some hardship. No way! She wasn't about to be put out for anybody else. You could say it this way. Michael loved David in the castle, but not in the cave. Though it was his integrity and his honor that got David in trouble, she still wouldn't support him. Rather than undergo hardships with her husband, she abandoned ship. I hope you realize that you don't have to marry a palti to abandon your spouse in tough times. You can remain married, but you can withdraw emotionally, or spiritually, or even financially. It's been said, marriage is taking turns helping each other endure the storms of life. Love sticks together. Often you hear of a family splitting over a crisis financial struggles, or the loss of a child, perhaps. Difficulties will either drive a family apart, or they will drive a family together. You know, at the seashore, you often see a vine growing around a tree trunk. And it's hard to tell, really, is the vine clinging to the tree, or is the tree sheltering the vine? Well, actually, it's both. One thing is for sure, it's the wind that strengthens the connection. And it's often the storm that unites families. I love Psalm 128, verse 3. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. In a scary, stormy time, a wife should wrap herself tightly around her husband. And a husband should lean in and protect his wife. I'm not sure it's true, but I've heard. That when a herd of wild horses are attacked, they all put their heads together. And they kick at their attackers with their hind legs. Whereas, when a herd of jackasses get attacked, they all get tail to tail and they kick each other. (laughs) I hope you get the point. It's better for families to put their heads together than to butt each other. A scary family pulls apart during difficult times instead of pulling together. Well, the final picture of David and Michael is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Saul is now dead. David is back home. He and Michael are together again. And Michael finally makes it, status-wise that is. She is the first lady of Israel. David is king and she's his queen. You would think that Michael would be grateful to God for delivering David and giving him the throne. Grateful certainly for softening her husband's heart so that he would forgive her betrayal. But Michael hasn't changed. It's still all about Michael. And you know, As one of David's first official acts as king, he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and give it a permanent home. Actually, 2 Samuel 6 is his second try. His first attempt ended in disaster. He was too flippant. They were too casual with the things of God, and it cost a man his life. This time, though, David worships God God's way. And everything goes well. In fact, David gets excited. He's no longer a nomad drifting through desert sands. He now reigns in Jerusalem. And the ark, which symbolized God's presence, rests right next to his palace. The king couldn't be happier. God has been so good. And David is so enraptured with the joy of the Lord, so full of enthusiasm and thanksgiving, he erupts in this spontaneous expression of uninhibited worship. He throws off his heavy, ornate, royal robes. And he takes an ephod, the humble, lightweight garment of a common priest. And he begins to dance before the Lord. He just whirls and twirls and he glorifies God with all his might. Oh, it's been a good day at the office. He blesses Israel and he heads home to bless his family and share the joy of the Lord. But when the door opens, oh my, old wet blanket Michael is there to douse the fire. She greets him sarcastically. Verse 20, she says, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Michael had been watching out the window, and she was disgusted by what she saw. In essence, she was saying to David, You're the king now, buddy. Why don't you start acting like it? What are you doing dancing around in your boxers? In front of all your subjects. You're embarrassing me. Hey, you see, Michael, she remembered the regal robes of her father, that her father Saul wore. Saul loved the prestige and the status that came with being king. He was all about image. He would never be caught without his royal vestments. Saul would protect his image at all costs. Now Michael is embarrassed at her husband. He doesn't act so royal. He's more a mere commoner. He he even acts like a priest. He loves God. That's all he cares about. A king doesn't go out and appear humble before his subjects, but David does. He was genuine. He was honest. He was humble before God. Remember in the beginning of their marriage, Michael appreciated what David was, but never learned the source of his greatness? Now her oversight resurfaces. She respects his position. He's the king. But she doesn't realize what went into obtaining that position. How he had walked humbly, and how he trusted God, and how he'd been faithful. She doesn't understand her husband, what makes him tick, the secret of his strength. And now life gets scary. In fact, here we reach a tipping point. She's no longer just a bystander as David is seeking God. On this day, she ends up a wedge. She drives a wedge between her husband and God. I hope you're not in that position this morning. I hope you are not the wedge between your spouse and God. Verse 21 tells us, So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father in all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Nothing like throwing a little dig at dead there. But it was true. God saw something in David's attitude that he didn't see in Saul's attitude. A genuineness, a humility, a true zeal and a love for God, a passionate love for God. He says, therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. See, Michael never learned her husband's heart. If she had, she would have understood his humility and his zeal for God and his unrestrained worship of God. You see, Michael was the classic case of what makes for a scary family. She was a taker, not a giver. She used folks, even her mate, for her own comfort and celebrity. She never tried to know this man. Instead, she made an idol out of him and never loved him for who he really was. And as a result, we read in 2 Samuel 6, verse 23, these terrible words. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. She died a barren, fruitless woman. And that, my friends, is a scary family. Not just the thought of no kids, but the thought of no joy and no love and no meaningful relationships. You see, spiritual and emotional barrenness is every bit the blight is not having kids. And it is the plight of anybody who looks out only for themselves. Don't be a Michael. Get to know your spouse and your kids. Get to know them. Care about them, not just you. Grow up as a family. Don't don't separate, but grow together and grow up as a family. Take on responsibilities. Grow up as a person. And don't run. But undergo hardships together. And if you do, God will see to it that your family ends up a fruitful one.